Here at Doxedo Bloom, we're excited about making disciples who impact the city and nations. We hope you enjoy today's message. Dumelang Mulweni, Goeienaand, and welcome to Doxedo Central's evening service. It's really wonderful having you all here. Great. My name is Lorraine, and I have the privilege of leading this campus, and I really want to welcome you here. I pray that you would meet Jesus, because if you meet the King, I promise you everything changes. He is the one guy that has been for 2,000 years now impressing everybody, whoever meets him, their lives just like turn upside down. So that's really my heart, and while we were worshiping tonight, I had it in my heart to say, guys, get ready. So tell the person next to you, get ready for something spectacular. Jesus wants to come and do something in you. I see I've lost you there. Okay, but in any case, great. It's nice being with you guys. And um, we're kind of in the middle of a series. So if you're here for the very first time, just bear with me for a moment as I help you journey through this series that we're in. It's all about disciple shift. That's what we call the series. It's every year we do this. And, it's, and, and the series is focused on the way we follow Jesus because a disciple is someone that follows Jesus. And so we've called the series Disciple Shift because we trust God that in the way we act or live out as Christ followers, sometimes we get stagnated into a religious pattern or whatever it might be, that God would come and shift our hearts and our focus and our minds and our way of doing things into the fresh perspective and picture that he actually has originally. So for this year, we're trusting God to look at our devotion. What does it mean to be devoted to the way? And um, just quickly to mention this, Jesus being the way, he's the way, the truth, and the life. If we are disciples of Jesus, we are devoted to the way. Acts chapter 2 says, the people devoted themselves They devoted them, not the pastor devoted them, not the deputy pastor devoted them, not the guy on worship doing this while he's worshiping. They did not devote you. They devoted themselves to Jesus. And devotion means it's like two sides of the same coin. The one side of devotion is the inspiration side. It's a side that says what draws out of you your devotion So meaning, what's this beautiful object? What's the thing that motivates you to actually do the second side of devotion, which is called application? So application is people giving their lives, sacrificing daily, like I'm putting in all the hard energy. And when we see people like this, like Usain Bolt, some of us are really devoted to our cell phones as well, and so on and so forth. We pour out our energy, our time, and so on into these things. It sometimes really inspires us to see people truly devoted to a cause or to some other form of art that they want to perfect in life. It's really inspiring. But the thing behind it is the thing that inspires us, that draws it out, that brings out this passion and this perseverance. And as I've mentioned, the series is centered around this verse. I'm going to read it with you. You can read it on the screen with me. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 42. If you have your Bible with you, you can do that as well. It says the following. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And we've been looking at these four areas of application. What does it mean to devote yourself? And what did it mean for the early church to do it? And today, we're going to be looking at prayer. That one little word, prayer. 
Now, before I dive into what this means, I just need to make a personal confession. This little thing, this word prayer, one of these four applications of all four of them, this has been the one that has probably transformed my life the most. Because it was an intimate moment of prayer where God would come and he would challenge me, he would encourage me, he would enlighten me, he would fill my heart with hope, he would see and speak to me something that he sees over my life where I would look at the world to kind of define who I am. This was the space, and this still is the space, where he most radically transformed my life. However, sadly, it's not the truth for most Christians. Most people that think about prayer, if I even say prayer, you're probably thinking, boring, come on, Pastor, really? Are we going to preach about prayer? Is that what's going to happen tonight? If you do not know what prayer is about, because let me tell you, boring is the furthest thing from describing what prayer is. Prayer should be one of the most electrifying experiences of your life, and here's why. Because you connect with the creator of the universe that spoke the world into existence, and you have a conversation with him. Imagine what will happen when he speaks to you. Can you imagine? So that's what we're going to be speaking about tonight. And um, for most people, because it's just boring religious activity, this is usually the place we go to tell God how bad we were last night. Anybody can relate to that one, God? We had a, I'm sorry, we had a party. And it just, <laughs> you know, but you will, will you still please love me? And I'm kind of like saying sorry, hoping to earn God's love again. Or the other side of prayer that we many times go to is to ask God for, can I please get this and this and this? And we have our list. And the better we ask, because we know as young children, our parents tell us, you must ask, please, say nicely. Otherwise, I'm not hearing. So now we ask, please, God, please, God, please, God, in the hope that he might just listen. And that's what prayer is to us. It's a boring time waste opportunity. And I remember a time in my life when it was exactly like that for me, where I would look for any excuse I could possibly find to not pray. I quickly want to list a few for you. Maybe you can identify with what I'm saying. Like, I don't have time to pray. I don't know how to pray. I tried, didn't get what I asked for, so pray probably, obviously, doesn't work. My mind wanders when I pray. So I tried this formula. It's really too contrived. I tried to freestyle my prayer. Whoever freestyle prayer, like, oh, yeah, let's go for it. But for some other reason, it really feels confusing. I fall asleep when I pray. I'm afraid that when I pray, God might just actually ask me to change something, and I don't want to change, so I'm just not going to pray. <laughs> so I'm like, ignore that space. I'm not. That's actually good, because some of us have actually already realized that prayer is powerful, because you're connecting with a powerful person. Or the good old favorite. If God really knows everything... Mm -hmm. Why do I even bother praying? I mean, he already knows it all. Why am I going to dive into prayer? It doesn't change anything. Or I did something bad last night, and now I'm on spiritual timeout. I'm sitting in the, in the naughty corner. <laughs> I can't speak to God now. I'm way too evil now. No, it's not going to happen. He hates me. Or I am not spiritual enough. I'm too clinical. I'm too tired. I'm too extroverted. I'm too introverted. And the introvert says amen all on the inside. Or the dog ate my homework. That is 
all of the reasons that I can come up with to not pray. It's actually amazing to see how we rationalize prayerlessness when it's the greatest thing that we can possibly engage in on a daily basis. It's unbelievable to see how we just like downplay it. I believe it's because many people have not yet discovered this. And it's that prayer is not a rhyme we repeat, but it's a person that we meet. That's the reason why we don't see prayer as something powerful. I'm going to say it again, because this was the mic drop moment, if you were wondering. If there's one thing that you need to take home tonight, it's this. Prayer is not a rhyme you and I get to repeat on a daily basis, but it's a person that we meet. And the people that surround us, they shape us. They form us into who we are to become. This is what prayer is all about. This is where God forms you. Great. So, I just want to mention something, because if you see prayer as this rhyme, it's probably because you look at prayer as a religious duty and not a relational opportunity. It's something that you need to do. And if I can share something off my heart, the one thing that has wasted most of my time and energy in life, drained every ounce of hope out of my little incy-beensy, teeny-weeny little heart, it is religion. It is that little word called religion that just drained the life out of me. And um, here's religion. Religion is climbing ladders. That's what religion is all about. Every religion on the planet is about climbing ladders to get to God. If you do everything right, you get closer. God accepts you, so you climb the ladder. If you do things wrong, God rejects you, and you fall down the ladder. Every single religion works like this. Let me quickly show you. Islam, five pillars of Islam. I obey, I say my prayers, I fast, I take the pilgrimage, I am accepted. Do you see the ladder? Buddhism, noble eightfold ways that Buddha himself started. It's a lot of hard work relinquishing your earthly desires, endless rituals, spinning prayer wheels, but to only in the end find nirvana, climbing the wheel to find my peace, or climbing the, climbing the ladder. Hinduism, there are lots of forms of Hinduism, but at the heart of all of Hinduism, there is the law of karma at work that constantly rewards all of your good deeds and repays all of your bad deeds. Do you see the ladder? Judaism, I mean, these guys are experts when it comes to religion. Let me tell you, they have a book, I mean, five books. It's called The Law, the book of the law. And in that, they've expanded on the Ten Commandments up to 600 and something amount of laws that you need to be climbing to make sure that you do not unimpress God in a sense. They are like experts at religion. That's at the heart of it. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in a world and in a space where there was some form of a religious version of Christianity. A ladder climbing one. I don't know if you know that one, but it's the one they say, obey God, come to church, read your Bible, pray, and just don't do anything bad. Then you're a good person. And then as you do this, you might just reach God. Now, I just want to make it clear. Not one of the things that I've just said is bad. It's good to live like that, to be surrounded. But if you see those things as steps, as ladders that you need to climb in order to get God's approval, you're not engaging in what Jesus came to do. You're not doing that. You're playing a religious game. And it's only after I met Jesus personally that I've discovered this. 
Now, just before I share quickly something about that, here's the bad thing about climbing ladders. Let me quickly share this with you. Ladders climbing produces two things in us. It either puffs you up or it breaks you down. Some of us are very good at obeying rules. We know the religious ways. I mean, we can do this well. It's just in our temperament. I mean, we're the list people, and I keep to my list. Anybody like that? Don't have to put up your hand too high. <laughs> okay? I was not like that. I'm not that kind of guy. But the reality is some of us are. And then what I found in people like this, and also in myself, is the more I climb the ladders, the better I feel about myself. The more confidence I have, I become this confident person. But the one thing that I do miss in myself is people like this, when they only climb the religious ladder, they think they're so good, they're better than the rest of us. They're the ultimate. And in fact, if you want to talk to the guys that hates them the most, it's the rebels. They're like, that's what's wrong with the world. These arrogant little know-it-alls, they're full of themselves. That's what religion produces. It puffs you up. The other side of religion is it breaks you down. Some of us, every now and then, we miss a step. We don't make it. I mean, let's confess. Come on, guys. <laughs> We're not perfect. And some of us, more than most, we miss those steps. And when this happens, what, what happens to you? It fills you with shame. It feels like I cannot do anything. I'm worthless. And people even beat themselves up with how bad they are. And like, I'm not worthy, God, to be in your presence. I'm so bad. I'm so what, 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 what. And even though there is a part of humility that's shining through there, it looks like people, I'm literally, I'm talking about physically, beating them up, saying, listen, I'm not good enough. I'm really not good. I call them miserable maniacs. They just live this miserable life. And that's the reality of religion. It produces arrogant know-it-alls or miserable maniacs. That's all that you're going to get. And if you put prayer in that little box, you'll end up in one of those two spaces. You'll either get puffed up because you feel you're so good, or you'll be miserable because you feel you can't do it. And that's not the picture Jesus has given us or invites us into. Here's the thing. After I met Jesus, guys... I discovered that at the heart of Christianity, even though I've walked this road and I've grown up in a religious institution for quite a long time in my life, the heart of Christianity is not a ladder, it's a cross. That's what's in the middle. And because of that cross, there is an opportunity to engage with your Creator. Suddenly, prayer has been moved and shifted from a religious duty and turned into a relational opportunity. Now, I don't think you realize what this means. So I just quickly want to take you on a journey that you understand what this relational opportunity actually is. So we're going to be reading out of Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 15. And the Hebrew writer gives us a picture of what has been happening, what Jesus did, how he opens up. And then he gives us six little words that I think describes what prayer is all about in one of the most profound ways. So quickly read with me from verse 14. It says the following, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize. How cool is that? Not a guy far out that cannot understand what I'm going through because he's already gone through it with our weaknesses, but he have one, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, 
Yet he did not sin. So this is the Hebrew writer explaining, Jesus died for you on the cross. He stood in your space. He took what you deserved. And now he represents you with the Father and he invites you in to be with him. The high priest was the only one that could be in the presence of God. That's the picture. And then he says, listen to these words. He says, like a Jesus high priest, open up. Listen to the invitation. Let us then. Everybody say us. 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 Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. I'm not even going to read further. Because in those six words, we're going to discover the power that lies within prayer. And the first two words that I want to point you to is the approach God's throne. We are to approach God's throne. Now, just quickly, who's sitting on God's throne? This is not a rhetorical question. We're in a church. Who do you think is sitting on God's throne? Anybody? Great. Thank you so much. (laughs) Feels like you're with me tonight. (laughs) Okay. So God is sitting on his throne. Do you know what that means? That is super powerful. Because usually when we come to God, what do we bring? What's the first thing that we think about? We think about the size of our problems. Guys, this scripture says, when you come to God, you need to think about the size of his power. He's sitting on his throne. He is the king of kings. He rules. He's not off of his throne. There isn't someone that has taken his space. He is occupying a seat of authority above every other authority in the universe. And he says, let us approach that God. Meaning this God is able. Say God's able. God is able. Do you really believe that? Let me quickly read for you. So God is not just kind of like Abel. He was able to deliver David from Goliath, deliver Daniel from the lion's den, give a child to a 90-year-old Sarah, calm the storm, part the seas, walk on water, judge the nations in righteousness, harden the heart of Pharaoh, soften the heart of Saul, and he is more than able to give you whatever you could ask or dream or dare even to imagine according to the glorious riches that you have in Jesus. Our God is able. And prayer is not positive thinking or whispering gentle wishes into the universe. No, no, no. Prayer is us approaching God's throne and our God is able. And if you wanted to say amen, this was the moment. (laughs) Guys, I don't know if you realize this, but I need someone that's able to take care of some of the biggest troubles in my life. I've heard so many people coming to ask questions, and they come to me, and I'm not even able to help them. But God is able, and not capital letter able, like able at the church there, like he's, he's able. He has the capacity. He has the power. He can do it. I mean, he created the universe by speaking it into existence. Hello. When last did you say tree arise and tree rise? <laughs> come on, man. Nice party trick. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. This is the guy that you get to speak to. This is the person that's opening up. It's a picture of God's capacity. Now, what's amazing about this scripture is that it doesn't just stop at the throne. It's not just saying God has a throne and a great image of power and sovereignty. But the text says that this throne of God, it has a name. God decided to name 
the throne that he sits on, to give it a name. The place where he puts his authority, he named it. And I love this because he didn't name it performance. It's not the throne of performance. It's not the throne of giftedness. It's not the throne around which beautiful people with all of their wealth and important network gather around and have good conversations. Dear old chap. It's not even the throne for the spiritual giants, guys. It's the throne of grace. That's what he calls it. God's throne is the throne of grace. Do you know what that means? It's the throne for the misfits, the mess-ups, the needies, the desperates, the unclean, the sinful, the losers, the failures, and the left-behinds like me. That's what his throne is for. Who would want people like that around his throne? Our God does. That is who. That's how amazing he is. He isn't just able to move mountains. He actually looks after the vulnerable. The push the way. That is his throne. That is prayer. Approaching the throne of grace. Quickly want to share with you a story where I had an encounter with this throne. Quite a few times it has happened in my life, but I want to share one significant one with you. It was um, just after I've given over leadership in the children's ministry, it's the first time I really got something significant to lead in life. Um, just started in my ministry, started in my calling, diving into that. And um, I really experienced a super sense of loss the moment I lost the ministry that I had to give over. Now, it wasn't a bad give over. It was really a moment of success. It was brilliant. God blessed us. We had a massive children's ministry. At a certain stage, I had 250 kids only in the children's ministry, and I had to give this over. So there was tremendous success in this ministry as we've journeyed. But after I've given it up, it felt like I have no worth or value or significance. God started working with me, tugging in my heart, and I was really angry, so I was in a very bad space in my life at that stage. And he started tugging in my heart, and I realized, you know what? I have been using the gift and the opportunity God has been giving me to lead in his church as a little ladder that I wanted to climb to prove myself worthy, to kind of like puff me up, fill me, fill me heart with pride. That's where I was. And I'll never forget this morning, I was driving out there to Brankop area, sitting in my car, and God started speaking to me that morning. He took me to the passage of Scripture to a character named Haman in the book of Esther. And Haman is probably the case, the most extreme case of pride in the Bible. The character that is filled with pride to a super extent. And if you don't know who this guy is, he was basically second in charge of the Persian Empire at that stage. Um, and he was just promoted, and he was so full and full of himself. And you know, the thing that pride does, it makes us like animals. We're just driven by our desires. We can't think rationally. We just go for whatever comes next. That's what pride does. It messes you up like crazy. Pride's the one thing that got the enemy out of heaven, got him out of God's kingdom. And here I was, endorsing it, enjoying it, cultivating it. Same as Hammond. And Hammond's story starts off with him being promoted to being second in charge of the Persian Empire. And the first thing that he wanted to do is he wanted to go through the streets of Persia and wanted everybody that saw him to bow down before him. Just like to feed his pride. I'm like, next. Not like the position is already there. I mean, like, I just want you to see it. 
And there's one guy that has the capacity and the identity, and he's so secure in himself, he doesn't bow down because he serves someone greater. He serves someone that sits on a bigger throne. His name is Mordecai. Haman is so upset when he sees this that he literally, he loses it. And he sees this one guy who's a Jew who doesn't bow down, and now he wants to kill the whole Jewish nation. Do you see how irrational this man is? Story goes on, and then there's this mind-blowing moment in Haman's life, which I really found profound. It's like the greatest plot twist in the Bible, except for the cross. Um, But listen for this one. This is mind-blowingly cool. So Haman walks in the one morning into the king's courts. He's been summoned, and the king asks him, Listen, Haman, what should the king do to the man in whom the king delights? Yes, Haman, I was waiting for this one. I'm like, thank you, gods, for answering my prayer. This is exactly what I wanted. And that is the thing that he's waiting for. So now he's ready because he thinks, obviously, there's only one person in whom the king can delight, and it must be me. And he starts putting down his request. I promise you, I think he'd been writing it down for quite some time. And the first thing he says, well, give him the king's robe. Do you know what that would signify? It would mean that the king sees him good enough to be him. Your robe is a symbol of your identity. And when the king would hang that on you, he would say, whoever sees this man needs to see my approval of this man. I approve of him to be good enough to rule over the Persian empire just as I am. Haman thought, yes, if the world can see this about me, if they could just see what the king thinks about me, that would be mind-blowing. Second thing. Give him a place on the king's horse. The king's horse was the place of authority. That's where the king would sit and his victorious, triumphant quests that he went on, he would come back triumphantly on his horse. And if he got that space, it would mean the king says, Hammond, you are my victory. You are the victory for this nation. That's what I'm seeing in you. And then lastly, just to top it all off, take the king's most trusted advisor and let him walk in front of this horse telling everybody, look, this is the man in whom the king delights. That's kind of the picture. That's where Haman was. And then we get the greatest plot twist ever. King looks at Haman and says, go and do that to Mordecai the Jew. (laughs) The guy you despise, the guy you hate deeply within your heart. You just want to kill him and all of his people. And suddenly, Haman finds himself in a space where he's put in place. Guys, that morning, the same thing happened to me. Because that morning, I realized I have entitled myself, due to my achievements, to sit in that same space, to put myself in the place where I feel, well, you know what? I'm the man in whom the king needs to delight. And everybody needs to see me. I should be driving on this horse. That's the space that I wanted to put out for myself. If you really ask yourself this question, who is the man in whom the king really delights? He has a name. His name is Jesus. And that morning as I realized I wanted to take Jesus' place, I was so arrogant, so full of it. I believed I was entitled to. I deserved all the praise. People need to look at me. I mean, I've deserved this. Look at how hard I've worked. 
when I realized that I just started backpaddling because, I mean, I grew up as a religious guy. I mean, that's the last place that you can be. You could never take God's place. Never mind insist on taking it. So I started backpaddling. I was like, no, God, never. I could never take that space. I could never, ever be the guy that's doing that. And then that next moment, the Holy Spirit stopped me in my tracks. And I heard Jesus' words as clearly as daylight in front of me. And he said, Lorraine, but I've already taken your place. I've already given you a seed of victory. And I'm walking in front. And I'm saying, this is the man in whom the king delights, and he points to me. Guys, I cannot tell you what happened that morning in my heart, but I was broken to my very core. I was cornered by his love, because in that moment, I could not believe, I could not believe that even though I like stuck it to the man, I like felt like I needed to take his place, he would take it in any case. And he would offer up his place for me. That was a life-changing moment in my life. That is grace. That is when you discover that you've been insisting on playing God. And you are the king of the universe, but you discover that you are not. And that there is someone that rightfully sits on that throne. But still, he took your place and your space. So we approach his throne of grace. He also says that we ought to approach it with confidence. I don't know how many of you guys feel that no matter what, I mean, I've shared my story now, and you might think, oh, well, that's teeny-weeny compared to what I've done. Do you know what I've done, Lorraine? God would never speak to me. If you knew what I've done, he would not even open his mouth speaking to me. And you won't have confidence even to engage in prayer. But the text tells us that we are to approach his throne of grace with confidence. Listen to this. God spoke to Cain right after he killed his brother. He spoke to Moses. He was a murderer and a fugitive. To Abraham, he was a liar. To David, he was an adulterer. To Solomon, he was a polygamist. To Jonah, he was a runaway. Thomas, he was a doubter. Peter, the denier. Lazarus, he was dead. God even spoke to a donkey whose name we do not know. Why on earth do you think he will not speak to you? And this is another moment for you to say amen. (laughs) No matter what you've done, guys, God wants to speak to you. He's clawed his way through heaven down to earth so that you can have a conversation, an intimate relationship with him. I want to end off with another guy. His name is Matthew. He would have probably put himself in the category of God can never speak to me. I don't have the confidence to be in his presence. You see, Matthew grew up in the Jewish nation. He was a devout Jew, probably very religious environment, obviously, as we know by now. So he, like, was forced to climb ladders from, like, that high. He didn't make it. The latter game broke him. He became a tax collector. He was seen as a traitor to his very own nation. Do you realize what that means? It's not just any nation. He's a traitor to the nation, God's nation. The nation through which God will bring his Savior. He was a traitor to that nation. And in steps Jesus. Matthew meets him changes his life upside down. He discovers there's someone that came to climb the ladder, finish the game, break it, turn it into a cross, hang on it for his life. And Matthew writes the following. He writes that the disciples of Jesus, which included Matthew himself, 
could have asked anything of Jesus, could have learned anything from Jesus. I mean, can you imagine walking with Jesus? I would like to have a few party tricks. Jesus like, teach me how to walk on water. That one is going to get me some girls at a party. Oh, Jesus, uh, teach me that bread trick. Um, it's really going to help with my finances. You know, it's going to work well. However, the disciples never asked for that. When they had the opportunity to ask Jesus to teach them something, they asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. Can you imagine that? I think they discovered something. I think they discovered that there is something more powerful in the person than in the miracle. And they wanted access to the source. They wanted to know how it works. Jesus says the following as Matthew pens it down, Matthew 6 verses 5. He says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have already received their reward, sorry, their reward in full. And Jesus dives in by talking about the, the, like the untouchable, the unknown. We don't never talk about this when we talk about prayer, that there is a reward in prayer. And we all look for a reward. And this is the hypocrite's reward. The hypocrite's reward is to be seen by other people. To be seen by people. I want to actually say that. And when you're seen by other people, you feel all spiritual and good inside. You see the religious game? I feel so good. I feel so amazing. Even if it's not other people, even if it's just me seeing that I'm praying every day, and it's all about me seeing that I'm praying, I'm feeling good about myself. Guys, the reward of prayer is not recognition. It's not. That's not the reward of prayer. The other reward of prayer, Jesus refers to it a few verses later, verse 7. He says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. I call this the pagans reward. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows already what you need before you even ask him. What's the reward of the pagans? Well, it's a response. If I can just get an answer out of God. If I pray, Jesus, Jesus, please, 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 please. And then what we do is like we pray and then we say, like I prayed and my prayer worked. It's amazing. My prayer worked. Jesus answered me. That's the reward. Can I just quickly make a statement? Your prayer never works. Only Jesus works. <laughs> make sense? The only one that's working is Jesus. The reward of prayer is not recognition or response. No, it's in verse 6. And Jesus points it out. I call this the child's reward. It says the following. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father. When someone is your father, you are their child. That's the reward, guys. The reward is a relationship. who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The child's reward is a relationship. And I don't know if you realize this. But that is God's desire for you. That is what prayer is all about. It's a personal relationship. The one that created you wants to connect with you. And he's sitting on his throne. And he's able. His throne of grace. That's the heart behind prayer. That's why they devoted themselves. It was speaking to the creator of the universe. Let's pray. Let's pray.
I don't know where you come from. I don't know what your life story is. I don't know if you've been climbing ladders and it broke you or it puffed you up. I don't know what are the challenges that you're facing and you're really hoping that there is someone bigger and someone greater that's able to take it, to solve it. I don't know whether you think you've done too many bad things. God would never speak to you. He would never even look at you. And frankly, I don't care whether any of those things was an excuse for you to reject him because it wasn't an excuse for him. He decided to pursue you passionately, to give his life so that he can speak to his children. You know, there's no one that has access to a father like his child. And Jesus gives us the right to be called children of God. Should you put your life and your faith in him and I want to give you an opportunity to do that if you are sitting here tonight and this is the first time you hear this radical story of a creator that doesn't want you to perform but he wants you to connect he wants you to engage if that's you I want you to put up your hand just for a moment for me please I'm not going to call you to the front amen thank you so much I've seen it I've seen it Amen. So, so cool. It's already three, four people. If you know you need to do this, put up your hand. Amen. Amen. Anyone else that knows they need to give their life to Jesus tonight? Tonight is my night. Tonight is the moment that I'm no longer going to run this race or play the game. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Make sure that you get connected to this family on mission by joining us at one of our Sunday services.